Hello, friends, and welcome to Sterile Field Guide, a podcast dedicated to medical student general surgical education. I'm Alex, and I'll be your guide. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode five. In this episode, we're going to be talking about how to be helpful on the floor. In the last episode, we talked about ways to be helpful and sort of the general layout of what the OR looks like for a med student. And when you're on your surgery clerkship, of course, of course, the OR is extremely important. But floor work is also a great way to help out your team and a way to learn to do things that you will absolutely be doing as an intern or at least watching med students do. So you should know how to do them yourself. So starting off what does on the floor mean so I sort of just explained it but anything that's not happening in the OR like pulling drains talking to families going to see consults that that's sort of like floor work so helpful tasks just sort of starting with a list and then we'll go into some details about things but helpful tasks that med students can do would be like calling for outside records calling bed management and seeing about transferring patients checking on the progress of things following up labs following up imaging following up cultures etc calling nurses communicating with nurses plans putting in consults paging people if that's something that you're asked to do or something that med students at your center typically do printing consent forms you probably can't consent to patient legally on your own but like setting up the consent form making sure it has the appropriate mrns and filling out the surgeons and the complications and stuff that's something maybe that you can help with another thing that you can do is like a semi-procedural task and we talked about this before but seeing consults is something that med students can do which can be helpful to sort of allow the interns and the residents to get some work done while you go see the resident. You can kind of set them up for success by telling them the story, sort of gathering their medical history before they go in so that when they do see the patient, it's very efficient. They can get their work done. They can serve all of the patients on their service to the best of their abilities with your help. Some procedural tasks that you can help with as a medical student on the floor would be like dressing changes. These sometimes happen during rounds and we can talk about how to be prepared for that. But sometimes they happen after rounds And so sort of like knowing how to do the dressing changes, knowing that that's a responsibility you can help with is key. You can help pull JP drains. You can help pull central lines, A lines, those sorts of things. Again, don't don't just like show up and do it by yourself. These are things that you probably ought to be supervised doing at least a couple of times, if not every single time that you do it, depending on your level of training. So again, ask to be shown, ask how people do it, what their approaches are, common ways that you can mess things up so that you can avoid that, and then maybe you will have some independence. Starting off with the helpful tasks on the floor, calling for medical records. This is something that you may, I don't know how your center works, but how we do it here is that you can actually set up your own fax number on Doximity, or you can ask the resident for their fax number, call outside hospitals, tell them what you need, provide them the information, get that ball rolling, and then they can either fax the records straight to you, straight to the MR or to your resident. This can be really helpful when trying to figure out information about a patient you don't know a whole lot about. For calling bed management, checking on the progress of things, communicating with nurses and families, these are just things that you can continuously be doing during the day um, as things come up. Try to get a try to get a feel of what is a task that doesn't require a degree, and then try to do those things or ask if you can help with those things. Calling people, talking to people, communicating plans with people, especially if the plan has been confirmed, has been set in motion, that is absolutely something that you can do. Um, 
And if your resident trusts you, which hopefully they do, you should be able to do this with enough independence where you can go communicate with things. You can check to see, oh, has the Foley been placed? Oh, have they taken the tech out yet? Those are things that you absolutely can do on your own. You can do social rounds after you do morning rounds, after you've written your notes and those sorts of things to just kind of check on the progress of things, see how people are doing, get to know your patients, etc. Since I mentioned it, like putting in consults and paging people, again, you should ask your team if this is something that they want help with. But if you are on like an acting internship or a sub-I, or this is just something that your institution expects from you, being the person who puts in the consult, asks the clinical question, is the person who's getting the call back, is a really great way to learn about appropriate paging and how consults work because you'll probably make mistakes when you do it. But it's a really great way for you to learn how how to work within the medical system, to appreciate other members from other services, and to appropriately ask them for help when you need help, and then not when you don't need their help. So that's something definitely to learn how to do. If you're not doing it yourself, you can also just ask your resident how they go about doing it. As far as procedural tasks are concerned, so we talked about dressing changes. This is something that you will definitely pick up and we can do a specific episode on like different types of dressings and when you would choose different ones. But typically when you're gonna be doing a dressing change as a medical student, you will just like copy what they did before. Like if the dressing is getting saturated, you will just replace it with that same sort of dressing unless you have specific instructions to do something else. You can, if your team likes to do dressing changes or always mentions dressing changes during rounds, you can just bring stuff with you. So have an abdominal pad, have acrylics, have some flushes with you if you need to do a wet to dry, like have stuff available, have a pair of scissors or a couple suture removal kits with you so that you can perform these dressing changes on rounds or you can stock those patients' rooms with things that you always need on morning rounds so that you're prepared to do it just then. Um, And once you've seen it once or twice, you kind of know what's going to happen. And so you can just be ready to do it as they're like, may I look at your abdomen, have your dressing stuff ready so that it's just look at the abdomen, inspect the abdomen, change the dressing, get on out. Like you can make this an efficient thing or you can do it after rounds. If your team prefers that you do it after rounds, that's totally fine. Just make sure you're paying attention when when they do the dressing change the first time so you kind of know the order of operation. Sometimes they'll do a wet to dry with Dakin's versus saline. So like just knowing what are they wetting this Krillex with? How far are they packing it in? What are they covering it with? Is this patient allergic to latex? Should I use a different adhesive tape? Should I be using paper tape or silk tape? Like there's a lot of things that can go into it. So just make sure you're kind of paying attention, but this is absolutely something that you can help with. Pulling drains, pulling lines, that is kind of like a fun, glamorous floor task for medical students, at least I think so. Pulling drains, if you're not familiar with a JP drain, it's like a a little bulb that kind of looks like a grenade attached to a plastic tube, a rubber tube that um, goes into the patient and drains fluid, and they are typically ready to come out when it's either reached like a daily output threshold. So if it's under, like for example, let's say under 150 cc's a day, okay, it's ready to come out. Or there are some cases where it's like, this patient is always going to have ascites. We have the strain in their abdomen. It's going to keep putting out because that's their physiology. And so when it's no longer bloody, 
we can take it out. When the character is of this type, we can take it out. And in some cases, like for instance, if a patient has ascites or a patient has a lot of fluid left and you know you're not going to drain it all, you may have to put a stitch in. So just like be aware that that can happen. As far as like steps of removing a JP drain, that's not necessarily the topic of this podcast episode, but we can go through it anyway. So some tips for removing a JP drain. You definitely, you should absolutely have somebody show this to you. Please not use this as your only training, um, but just kind of like prime your mind. You should have something to catch drippage. So whether that's like a chucks pad, paper towels, whether that's like a little sterile drape kind of thing, you should just have something that's going to catch the drip, the dripping from the JP drain when you take it out. You should never have your JP drain to suction when you are pulling it out of a patient because that is applying suction to the bowel or whatever that drain is up against while you're pulling it out and applying negative force. And so that can just like hurt a lot, but also you don't want to be sucking on something and then trying to pull it out of the abdominal wall, especially if it doesn't belong outside of the abdomen, which is most things in the abdomen. So you should take the cap off. You should never have suction on your JP bulb. At this point, you've got your thing ready to catch. You're no longer to suction. The, the bulb, when it is to suction, if you've never seen it, is like, can be like folded in on itself. And then as it like tries to expand, it exerts negative pressure. That's what's pulling the fluid out. And so if you pop that tube off, pop that cap off, there's no longer suction. It's just open to room air. At this point, you're ready to cut the suture out. So you're not cutting the patient's skin. Don't cut it right on the knot so that you have two two holes coming because you can lose the bottom of that suture in the skin. You wanna cut it to the side of the knot, pull that suture out. Now you are ready to take the drain out. At this point, I usually like to prime my patients with like, this is going to hurt but it goes away very quickly, okay? So patients know what to expect and they know how long it's gonna last. And then I typically ask, would you like me to count or do you want me to just do it? And people either say, I want you to count or no, please just do it when you're ready. And then you pull and that's it. And if you are pulling against so much resistance that you can't get it out, you should stop pulling. JP drains can absolutely break and you don't want to leave. <laughs> you don't want to have a retained fragment of a JP drain in somebody's abdomen. That becomes something that you have to fish out with an operation. So if you are having trouble taking something out, don't force it. It should just come out. Okay, so if that's not happening, stop what you're doing and go ask somebody for help. So that is how you pull a JP drain out. As far as like pulling lines out, I feel like central lines, you definitely will need to be supervised doing this at least the first couple of times with a central line, especially in the jugular vein, you run the risk of patients having like an air embolus. And if you haven't heard of an air embolus, it can become an emergency very quickly. And basically what that is, is you get air into your heart and it can just cause like arrhythmias and arrest and that's just a bad thing and we don't want that to happen. And so to prevent this, there's a special way that you should remove lines and there is some debate on like whether this is a useful technique or not, but we all do it anyway because it's better safe than sorry and it doesn't hurt the patient to do this. So when removing central lines, at least how we do it at my institution, 
first, obviously you're going to take the bandage off. You're going to like have your supplies ready. I like to have like some fluffs or some, some gauze is what we, we call them fluffs here. You may not, but have some fluffs ready, have a bandage ready, usually like a tegaderm to sort of occlude that when we're ready. And then you'll need to have some scissors to cut the sutures out. Again, don't cut right on your knot so that you have two little things that can get stuck on the, under the skin. So you'll cut your sutures out, you'll take your sutures out, and then you're going to have the patient hum. And so you, again, you can tell them like, hey, this is going to feel maybe a little bit uncomfortable. I really don't want you to be breathing in and exerting negative pressure with your lungs. So if you go... (gasps) If you're gasping because it's uncomfortable, that can like maybe increase your risk of having this air embolus, which is a bad thing that we don't want to happen. So what I want you to do is hum. And if it's uncomfortable, you can just hum louder. So you can just grunt through it if that's what you have to do. But I really don't need you to breathe in. So I'm running my dishwasher at the very same time that I absolutely had to tell you that when you are removing a central line, you should be doing this in the Trendelenburg position because this also serves to increase the central venous pressure and decrease your risk for air embolism. That is it. That is all with the dishwasher running. At that point, you can grab your fluffs and kind of place it over where you're about to to pull the line so that when you pull it out, your fluffs are already occluding that hole. You can count or you can just do it depending on patient preference. And then you'll pull it out and then you will hold pressure on the neck for like 10 to 15 minutes. Could be longer if they're super coagulopathic or on blood thinners. You just really don't want it to bleed. That's a big vessel. It can bleed a lot. And so we're going to hold pressure there. And then when we are sure that it's not bleeding, we will place an occlusive dressing over that. And that is how you pull a central line. Again, please Please do not have this be like the only education that you ever have on pulling central lines before you do it yourself, but that's sort of like a really broad overview that you should absolutely watch and be educated by real people in real life before doing. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. One other thing that we haven't mentioned to sort of wrap up the this episode would be doing post-operative checks. So post-op checks typically occur like four to six hours after surgery, and in post-op checks, there are some things that you want to check on. Obviously, just like the normal human things that you want to check on for patients, which are going to be like, are you having any pain? If you change their diet from NPO to like clear liquids or adult regular diet or whatever you change their diet to, you want to make sure like, are you having any nausea or vomiting? Are you tolerating your diet? Are you passing gas? Are you urinating on your own? Have you had a bowel movement? Those are kind of some things that you want to know about. You want to know about their pain. You want to inspect their incisions and make sure that they're not like seeping or oozing or looking like dehissed or anything like that. Those are some kind of some things you want to ask about in a post-op check. Just like normal things that you would ask somebody kind of in a progress note, but like pretty specific to their post-operative course and some people will still be kind of sleepy from anesthesia so it may look different from how you pre-run on a patient in the morning but similar questions like how are you tolerating your diet how are you feeling what's your pain like where is your pain may I examine you and you can also do a review of systems if you want to be thorough in a post-op check the notes are a little shorter at least here for post-op checks unless something wild is going on but that's something that you can help with and again I would encourage you with all of these new things if you've never done them before 
before. It's totally fine as a medical student to watch first a couple times even and just like ask questions like how do you do this efficiently? Why do you like to do it in this order? How do you go about writing your progress notes? Like ask first, observe a couple times and then you can try and you might not be awesome at it the first time but I feel like a really big part of med school is growing pains and the more you do something the better you get at it the more efficient you are and that is just one step closer to you being an independent practitioner in your life so that's exciting and I want that for you so I hope that this episode gets you one step closer and I will see you next time bye That's it for today's podcast. You can support this podcast and receive exclusive educational content on Patreon and find us on Instagram at Sterile Field Guide. Questions and requests can be submitted to our Gmail at sterilefieldguide at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, may your retraction be superb and your suture tails be the perfect length.